Dr. Chris August was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona. She got her DVM from Colorado State University in 1991, then returned to Arizona with her husband, Radford Davis DVM. After working in various small animal practices, she and her husband relocated to Ames, Iowa, when he took a position at Iowa State University. After some time raising children and investigating her interest in herbal medicine, Dr. August started a mobile practice, including a focus on hospice and palliative care. She is certified by the International Association for Animal Hospice and Palliative Care, IAAHPC, and has contributed to the text Hospice and Palliative Care for Companion Animals, published in 2017. Dr. August was in the first cohort of CIVT's Graduate Diploma of Veterinary Western Herbal Medicine program. A large part of her practice is now Western Herbal Medicine. Dr. August teaches Western herbs for Purple Moon Herbs and Studies and participates in the certification process for the IAAHPC. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. August as we talk about growing up in Arizona, attending veterinary college in Colorado, and how her practice has evolved to focus on providing herbal medicine, palliative and hospice care, as well as teaching other veterinarians about her areas of interest. Dr. August, thanks for joining me. Oh, glad to be here. So you grew up in Tucson. I did. Yes. Yep. I was a little nature kid running around in the Sonoran Desert. That was that was my home. My parents had a, or uh, still, well, my mom just sold our home on the side of a mountain, five acres in the Tucson mountains. So I kind of ran around in the, the hills there in the desert. I imagine the market is as strong there as it is everywhere else. The real um, estate market. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was, it was a good move. She was ready to, to move closer to my sister so my sister could help her out. And so it's sad to see the place go, but it's also has gotten a lot more built up than it was when I was a kid riding horses through the desert. And now it's all, those places are all filled with houses. So it's, wow. it's a little sad too. <laughs> sure. Sure. So when did you mm -hmm. decide you want to be a veterinarian? Uh, when I was, I know it was pretty solidified by fourth or fifth grade. I, you know, I, we had animals, we had the horses and I had rabbits. I was in 4-H, did all those things. And I remember that I wrote a paper when I was, I think it was fifth grade that I was going to, you know, what are you going to do with your life? And I was going to live in a lighthouse and have lots of animals. That was my future. <laughs> <laughs> so, and be a veterinarian. That was <laughs> not many lighthouses in Ames, probably. Yeah, yeah, I kind of missed that one. <laughs> so, where, where'd you go for undergrad? Um, Arizona, U of A, uh, University of Arizona in Tucson. Yeah. So, when it came time for vet school, did I know you went to Colorado State, but did you have other options? What was as far as places to apply? Not as far as I knew. I mean, everybody from Arizona that didn't have a lot of money went to. Colorado because, or, or Washington, I guess that was the other option because they had the, the witchy program, Western interstate commission for higher education. I still remember those words, <laughs> but so we could go, you know, Arizona didn't have a vet school. It just finally is getting that together, has a couple now, but we, um, we couldn't. So we, we were able to go to Colorado and then come back and give four years of our life as, um, working in Arizona. So that was the deal. And that paid. So we got to do, uh, have in-state tuition. So, wow. yeah. Yeah. So. How many were in your class? I want to say 120-ish. Yeah. So pretty, pretty large. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And probably about 50% women? 65-ish, you know, right. like just over 50, but... Do you think your education was good? I learned a lot. It was, you know, as far as practical experience, I think I got most of that before vet school. I worked as a veterinary assistant from high school through undergrad, through summers after vet school. So a lot of my hands-on education was in, you know, in clinics, but I mean, it was good enough. It was, I, I certainly, when I graduated, didn't feel like I knew everything and, and I still don't. So yeah. <laughs> there's that. I don't know that anybody does. Um, did you have an idea what sort of medicine you want to practice then? At that time, I wanted to do uh, wildlife and exotics and zoo medicine. So that was, and then somewhere along the way, I, I became a little bit less enamored with, with the way, you know, with keeping wild animals as pets, that, that, that sort of part of it and, and keeping zoo animals in the zoo, that sort of thing was less, less exciting, but it was, it was always, it was always about nature. It was always about, you know, that, that side of things for me. Did you get any exposure to uh, holistic medicine in school? Not at all. It wasn't even on my radar. Not at all. Um, so you had, well, because of the agreement, you had to return home. So mm -hmm. what kind of practice did you go into after, after graduation? Well, I, um, so I met my husband in vet school and he was from Utah and they actually didn't have to go back. So he, he came to Arizona with me. <laughs> and so we both shared about a, a job and a half's worth of emergency work for starters. Oh, wow. And, and so I worked emergency and then I did relief work and worked at a number of different practices and, and then had some pretty steady work in various practices. So it was kind of part-time in different practices. That must've been a good experience really as a new grad, right? To get around a little bit. It, it definitely gave me a lot of different, um, different experiences. I, I worked in sort of lower income, high, like high, high, you know, quantity, not quality necessarily practice, but they did such a good job with the low income population. So it was, it was hard work and it, you know, beat me up. I was my late twenties and my, I was already having back problems working in this, you know, high intensity clinic. And then with the emergency work and what you probably, you probably learned a lot that of approaches that you didn't see in school though, doing that. Yes, absolutely. Right. You know, I feel like those, those experiences opened up, you know, helped me to be more open-minded about my approach to medicine in general. And, and, you know, what, what do we need to do and what, what can we do? How can we keep animals comfortable? Cause that sort of became my, my interest later on is hospice and palliative care and those kind of things. And, and from learning how to keep animals comfortable in a low income side of things, that that really helped pave that for me as well, I think. Yeah. So at what point did you did you guys leave Arizona? Um, so he really didn't like practice, didn't really like emergency medicine. So he uh, went on and got a master's of public health. And he um, so we left after about seven years and moved to Iowa. He got the job at Iowa State. So my husband's Radford Davis, Dr. Radford Davis. So. So he did an MPH while he was working. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh man, that's a lot of work. Yep. And we moved to Iowa with a four month old baby. Oh man. So what was funny while we were still in Tucson, we, we had sold our house and we were living with my parents 
And the pregnant woman who had just had a baby was the, and during that time period, I was the only one actually working. During, you know, my parents oh. were retired. My husband had finished. <laughs> so that was, that was interesting too, but I wasn't, it was part-time. But. So a big shift moving to Ames or was it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Desert rat moving into <laughs> the winter. That was, yeah. that was, a, and, and we didn't know anybody here. Yeah. So. And how about for your husband? What part of Utah is he from? Um, he's actually kind of, he grew up in Michigan, spent some time in a lot of different places. So, so for him, he really wanted to get back to the snow. And for me, I, and I loved the snow in Colorado. And so I was, I was open to it and, and it's been, it's been a good move, been really great place to raise kids and to have a family and be with people here. Um, so you had a young baby. What did you do for practice then when you moved? So I was pretty burnt out at that point. I, you know, conventional practice kind of beat me up quite a bit. And, and I was pretty burnt out on just the way veterinary practices were run and just the way we were treated and, and everything. It, it just, I was, I was done. I, I felt like I was retiring at that point. I would, I didn't really gr- embrace my retirement from veterinary medicine early on, <laughs> but by the time I re- embraced the fact that I was quitting veterinary medicine, that's when I started back again. <laughs> so so what did you decide to do? I did some I did some writing for people at the university, and I worked a little bit on um, computer programming. Authorware was a program back then that we used for educational programming. So I did a, it's like pseudo programming, not real programming, but that was another part of my nerd side was doing computer things. And so I did a little bit of that, but mostly I was home with with my daughters, and I had a second daughter a couple of years later, and they were. Um, we had a Waldorf-inspired preschool in the area, and so I became a playgroup leader for that, singing songs and making Waldorf crafts. And that was like that was my healing time, really. That I I actually learned more about the herbs. And a group of friends, we would take the kids out into the woods, and we would identify plants and start learning about the wild edibles and you know growing calendula, making calendula salve. All those things kind of happened during that time for me. So, so that was, I was very fortunate to be able to do that. And, and luckily my husband, he, he actually made the same amount almost that we made together in Tucson. <laughs> so, so the income we were like, well, we can live on this. And, and, and so it was temporary. And, and so that, that really helped me. And we just didn't want to leave our kids with anybody else and that we didn't know. That must have been nice. It was great. Yeah. So how old were the kids when you decided to uh, start practicing again? Um, about five. I think the maybe three and five was when I started. And I started a house call practice at that point. Now, had you taken the herbal course from CIVT yet? No, it was not available. I okay. I was doing my own herbal learning and you know the books and various resources and had learned about it, but I had, I didn't realize I was going to do it with the animals. I was doing it with family and people. And, and what happened was, uh, Barbara Fougere did a course, an intro to Western herbs on Vin. Yeah. And I took that and I was hooked. It was like, that's what I want to do. And, and so I waited and it was a, a year or two. It was a couple of years, I think before they were ready to start the Western herbs program at CIBT. Yeah. Yeah. So I waited and waited and waited, <laughs> and then finally 
you know, was able to join that. So I was in the first class of that course. Of the graduate program. Of the graduate program. Yeah. Yeah. So you had started this conventional mm-hmm. house call practice. House call practice. So yeah. I limited what I was doing and hospice and palliative was, was sort of my, my leaning in geriatrics. So the kinder, gentler part of practice that things that I could do at home with people and integrative still definitely referring people when they needed other things. Did you have an assistant or just, just you? Just me. And my husband, when I needed help, like for blood draws or anything, he still is my assistant. When, so <laughs> we would schedule Saturdays together or different times. And, and it was always part-time. And yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I imagine Ames was probably a pretty supportive environment for even just studying the herbs on your own, you know, being in a college town. It was, it was, you know, and, and I've, I've had interesting, you know, clients that are interested in it. They're maybe not seeking it, but when I say, Hey, I've got some herbs that could work for that. They're, they're open to it and they're willing to try. And that's, I I have definitely a mix. I have the people that are seeking that treatment specifically. And I have other people that haven't really thought about it, but that are willing to try and then become hooked on them too and, and realize how supportive they can be and how effective they can be. When did you uh, do your, do the training? What, at what point in the timeline did uh, training for hospice work come in? Um, I think it came before. I, th- I think, and, and it was it was sort of a way of life for me anyway. And then I found an, the organization, the IAAHPC, International <laughs> Association of Animal Hospice and Palliative Care. Yeah, and, and they were just developing during that time as well. So I started going to those meetings and then, you know, got on guidelines committees and got involved with that. What's involved in the certification for that group? It's a year long certification program. I think it's about a hundred hours. Um, some of it's in person at normally at, mm-hmm. at the meetings, there, there's a communication workshop for a day and then a number of online, you know, you watch a video, answer questions, sort of training through. Yeah many different aspects of it. I'm unfamiliar. So give me a rough ballpark of how many veterinarians are certified through that group. Oh, I wish I had a, a good number for sure. I want to say a hundred to a couple hundred at this point, yeah. we, you know, they're 30 or 40 every year and it's been going four or five years now. And then at what point did you decide to write the textbook? Um, I was, I was asked to help out with it. I had been on the guidelines committee and um, and so I knew Amir Shannon and Jessica Pierce and you know, the the editors of the book, and and they felt like I would be a good part of that. And 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 we get to do a rewrite soon, so I'm I'm excited to add a little bit more about the the integrative side of things, herbal side of things in in the next one. But you know, the first one was sort of the the overview, but it's got a lot of really good information in it. And it's kind of the you know, it is the textbook for that course and for anyone who wants to do palliative medicine. So if, if I'm right, th- that book's about four years old now? 2017, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. That must have been a massive undertaking, though. It was huge. Yeah. You know, work, working and doing all that and working mm-hmm. with the editors and mm-hmm. I can't imagine. I, you know, I was always an author of just a couple of chapters. So I had my my little my little job and but they, you know, there were definitely regular meetings and conversations about content and how it was all going to fit together. That was a big question because we were all out there in our own little spaces writing our bits and, and didn't not really knowing what everyone else was writing. 
and how it was going to all pull together. So the editors coordinate all that. Then. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's been this amount of time and now they're ready. They've come back and said, okay, now we're going to update. Right. Right. And I think it's because the program has been so popular, the certification program and everything that it's, it's important to get it out there and, and time to update it. Yeah. So you'd, you'd had the practice established and then started, were you, I'm sure you were offering some herbal medicine probably before you were, before you even took the graduate program. Yeah. I was, yeah. Little, little bits. I mean, I was making my calendula salve and giving it to, you know, wounds, people with wounds for, you know, really early on clients and their animals. (laughs) They still always want more. Um, what, now, what part of your practice is, um, say, euthanasias of, of pets that you don't have a relationship with? Is that something you do? I don't do that. I, yeah, I'm not, I don't really consider myself a euthanasia vet. I can, you know, I do definitely do euthanasias, but it's, it's after having a relationship with people for the most part. There yeah. was, I've become so busy with teaching also that, that I just, you know, I thought my practice was going to grow with my children and it did. But then I got this this sidetrack into teaching that um, so my practice has stayed small. And so now I'm not taking on new clients and I, you know, I'm taking care of the ones that I've had as they get into their hospice needs now. And so mostly I don't have to do that. And but it, you know, there's a conversation involved with that. I've definitely done that in my life and and know how to do that. Yeah. So. Uh, you mentioned that the the hospice course that you there was some communication involved. I mean that's it's critical. It uh, is. Are there other are there other things in there? I mean, self care and things that I'm sure you have to practice to maintain some sort of sanity. Mm-hmm. There's you know there there are lectures on setting boundaries and and knowing that we can't be available 24 seven without you know having <laughs> having some effects on our own self. At that point, so so how to have an emergency plan, a backup plan, how to help clients navigate that whole part of things. Um, do you have a sense of for, for for the members of the group, the sort of you know the certified hospice people? Do they, what percentage of them would you say work like you as a mobile, and how many are in a brick and mortar clinic? Um, I would say, I mean, I don't know percentage wise, 80%. There are a lot of mobile and some are euthanasia only. And a lot of those end up working into palliative because sometimes you get there and, and it's either not time or, Oh, I wish I could have done seen them sooner. And there's so much we could have done palliatively. There, there's so much open space there between a, a diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis and euthanasia that, that we have to work with palliatively. So a lot of people, do the house call maybe euthanasia or it's interesting because the people that come to this, this end of life work either come from emergency experience mm-hmm. or from house call experience where, where they, you know, the, those are the two biggest populations that end up doing hospice and palliative care. Sure. Sure. Um, how has it been to, I imagine you, when you did take new clients that they were word of mouth, Mm-hmm. You know, right. is, is there a lot of friction now where, you know, people recommend you and how long haven't you been taking new people? Um, I had actually started before the pandemic <laughs> when I started teaching. And, and so now I'm teaching with Dr. Lori Doman at Purple Moon Herbs and Studies in the Outer Banks. 
And so when I could travel, I was traveling in the spring and fall. So I'd be gone during these chunks and I didn't really feel like I could start a new hospice patient or start a new patient. So, so it's been a few years since I have not been advertising that I'm taking new people, but I was still kind of taking the word of mouth and letting them know I'm, I'm available here, but I'm not available here. Does that work for you? We can at least have some conversations. And with the pandemic, I realized, you know, this whole idea of, of telemedicine, or at least having conversations with people, most of the ones that I've, that I do now, I've, are the ones that I already have a relationship with, or I've seen their animal, and I am able to go see them on the porch or do, do something pandemic friendly, you know, to, to continue to take care of these patients. But even then, there are conversations that we can have that are, are not medicine, but they're more consultation that, that I can still do. So that's been interesting as well. So you're doing a lot of that rem- remotely now? No, some, you know, yeah, it's definitely a possibility when people have a conversation they need to have and their veterinarian doesn't have time. Or, you know, I mean, everyone's been so overloaded with the pandemic and curbside practice that that's that's become a thing for hospice and palliative veterinarians to help advise and do that side counseling of people to, yeah. to help them know what questions to ask when they go into their veterinarian and, and to support them in that and and um, try to make it a smooth transition to you know to their regular veterinarian it's difficult you know with yeah. all the wait wait times and everything that people have to experience it's mm-hmm. a lot of frayed nerves it seems like yeah yeah everywhere so it, in normal times what is your uh, practice area how, f- how far do you range from home Mostly, I'm able to stay in Ames, which is about 15 minutes drive across. And so that's really nice. Once in a while, I'll go 20 or 30 minute drive to to the cities on each side of us, basically. But mostly, I've been able to limit that because I've been busy enough and, and not wanting to spread too thin with everything that I do. <laughs> so not a lot of time wasted behind the wheel so to speak. No, no. And, you know, when my kids were in middle school and high school, they, we actually homeschooled them and, and they were part-time. They could dual enroll in the middle school and the high school. So they would take a few classes at the high school. So, so I'd drive my kids, drop them off somewhere, pick up some fecal samples, drop off some herbs and, you know, do this little round circle of, of the town doing my vet business while, while they were in school. <laughs> do they have either? Do they have any interest in veterinary medicine? Not in veterinary medicine. <laughs> they kind of both said no way. But but one of them is definitely my nature kid, and the other one is interested in history. And and so between both of my interests, it really pulls them together. You know, the because with the herbal medicine, I I love the history of it and the tradition of it, and and how learning how different people worked with the herbs and the plants in their locality. And herbalism so, has a rich history, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah. yeah. Um, how's it like practicing in a university town? Do you have a relationship with the university at all? I not really at the moment. I had a wonderful oncologist that I worked with for many years who would, I could come in and, and I actually spoke to the senior students on their rotations about hospice and palliative care and, and that kind of medicine. And, and every now and then I talk to the, the student group about integrative medicine, herbal medicine. But um, 
part of it is I've been so busy. I haven't really gotten, you know, made, made that effort to get out there. I guess that, that maybe I should have, but. So they have a student group. Do they have any electives at all? In they do the not. Okay. They do not. And how about for, for hospice and palliative care? Nope. So no discussion, just the, no. what some exposure they might get maybe through you. Right. And, and do you take students at all with you? You know, I don't see enough. I'm, I don't have a regular enough practice to be able to take students on in that way. So yeah. um, I'm open for having conversations with them. And every now and then I'll, you know, in, in the old days would have coffee with a student or, you know, we'd talk about things in that way. So at what point did you start teaching? I'm trying to think. I There was a... Um, there was a course that CIVT had in person here. There was a two-part course and Lori was teaching with Barbara. And then the second one I taught the hospice and palliative lectures, gave a few on the, using herbs for hospice and palliative care. And at that point, Lori and I had been studying together for the the VBMA, the Veterinary Botanical Medicine Association for, for their certif- certification course or their certification, there are 150 or more herbs that you had to study. And so we had spent a year talking on the phone every two weeks and learning these herbs together, at least, you know, getting our monographs together and everything. And, um, and then we lectured together at that time. And she, and her dream for many years had been to teach and to create this educational center. And she, she said, you want to teach with me? And I said, yes. And (laughs) it's sort of been this, you know, it's been going ever since then and, and growing and building. So, so it must've been, probably, first of all, it must've been great to have someone to study with. It was, it was, it was perfect. It was really nice. And, and she's, you know, I'm sort of the idea person and she's the, the motivator, the go, <laughs> the go getter. So between the two of us, we work really well together and she kind of kept us on track and, and yeah, so that was really nice. And then, so it's been about four years that we've had the course going. Right. So to, uh, just go through the logistics of that, how it's laid out. Um, it's a five-module course throughout the year. So three in one in the fall was the way it was, and mm-hmm. two in the spring. Now we're starting a new group right now in the spring with two in the fall. So it just depends. But five modules of three-day weekends where you go to the Outer Banks and – and we go through organ system by organ system with herbal medicine, some introductory stuff early on. And then we have organoleptics, which is smelling and tasting and, you know, really getting to know the herbs. We have, so she has this new building, the Lowood Educational Center, which is this gorgeous retreat retreat center with a yard where, where we're getting the plants that we want there, the herbal plants. So we can do herb walks right outside our door and then we can do herb walks down island and in different places so they you know people can see the plants of that area that that we have so there's it's a lot about hands-on and that was always her dream was to get yeah. that side of things and you and guys I are making, doing preparations really, yeah i see it being really compatible with the civt grad course because that's the that deep dive in, i mean we have science in ours too but we don't make anybody write papers <laughs> research papers yeah so. Do the, do the students stay at the facility then, at this new facility? There's room. There are three rooms. On, so half of it is the educational side and half of it is a cottage sort of mm-hmm. thing with three um, 
three rooms in there so we can we can house up to six people if they pair up but that's we really nice have at least three people that stay there and then um Lori has connections with Airbnb and other people around so people end up finding housing you know places near the beach or wherever and and so yeah it's, that's it's really a fun nice that, retreat yeah yeah that people can get together and then you can go on the walks and do all that together mm-hmm. yeah looking forward to doing that again it's <laughs> So I'm zooming so, into those right now. Yeah. But so prior to the pandemic, everything was in person. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And, and then you guys have adapted by doing some things online now or how? Yeah, we had a cohort that we had to finish out. And so their last couple of classes were on Zoom. And then, um, and we've had, well, we had the hospice and palliative herbal medicine or integrative medicine course that we had planned for in-person and that we ended up doing two parts Zoom, you know, both parts Zoom. So we've, we've been, I've been doing a lot more zooming and there's, there's a small group of them now meeting in person in this spring, starting the new group that was supposed to start last fall. And, and I zoom in because Iowa just isn't quite there yet on as far as disease control. Yeah. Goes. Yeah. Um, how about your, how about the hospice group? Are they meeting in person yet or not, not? yet? I, I think they have plans for their fall meeting to be in person. They're, they're advertising it as an in-person meeting, but I don't know. I feel like some of these meetings, they're, they're allowing this, this other online part to continue, which I think is really cool. I, I think that can, you know, it's good to have both because then you have access. It is good to have both. I think that's one thing that everybody's learned is that it's kind of nice to be at home and take mm-hmm. these things in online sometimes. I mean, uh-huh. the last public event I went to was where you and I were in, in Columbus together. That's right. That's you know, right. that was just yeah. prior to when things really shut yeah. down. End of February. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And we had had someone, a speaker in, in the Outer Banks, Richard Mendelman, in early February. So I had gone from that directly to yours. So I was on a plane all over the place. <laughs> Not knowing, not knowing the things. I mean, we knew it was around, so I think it was in my in my head a little bit, but it wasn't. I had no idea it was going to become what it is. Yeah. How have you guys changed? Um, Have you had students do herb walks on their own, or how has that changed when you've had to do be teaching remotely? Um, Basically, yeah we we basically finished up what we had to do with you know, our lectures, our Materia Medica lectures and, Mm -hmm. and had them, um, well, actually what happened was Lori and the students who wanted to be present were present last fall and me and, and a few of the students that didn't want to be present were zooming in. So we had a sort of a hybrid version at that point where everyone was masked and she's got this poly, uh, polyglass, thing that she lectures behind. And so she's, she's got herself all set up and with HVAC, you know, good filters and big windows she can open and then the open space, but they did do herb walks and they had masks on when they were close together on the herb walks. But when they were separate, they were able to take their masks off. So it was a trick, but they, they did pull it off and did well. Takes a lot of logistics, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she's got to s- set up the building and not knowing how long this thing's going to go on, and you get right. to consider where people are traveling in from, and just the travel itself. There's just yeah. so much to consider when you've got a really uh, high touch kind of program like that. Right, right, and I mean, totally changed the way we share the herbs. The way you know it, the um, so now the 
we have a TA, a student from a previous class that that is an assistant. And so it's all very much the TA scoops out the herbs for you. You don't pass the jar around so that everybody's putting their hands in it. And so all these methods of of, uh, passing around the herbs have totally changed due to COVID. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully things will get back to somewhat normal or what we're used to. Yeah, some new normal. uh, Yeah, right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for talking. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Oh, I I really enjoyed it. And I hope to see you soon in person. Yeah, I hope so too. Can't wait. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.